Hello, hello, hello again. Uh, it is me, Brandon Pudwell, the host of the Creative Outlet Podcast, which you are listening to, uh, otherwise known as the COP or the COP. Still undecided. We'll f- I'll figure it out someday. Uh, so, uh, what are we in for today? Well, uh, let's just first start with what is today. Uh, today, the date that I'm recording this, is January 23rd. 2020. Uh, As I'm sure you've already noticed, I'm in a completely different position in a completely different location because I have returned to college. Isn't that a wonderful little thing? Uh, You know, I brought back all of the uh, stuff that I had uh, at home. Well, the stuff that I initially brought here in September and then brought back home in December. (laughs) And then now I brought it back here in January. Um, So, you know, that's fun. Uh, Also, of course, brought back some new stuff like this this, this thing that my audio is coming through, Uh, my microphone, um, and, you know, just just a couple of other little things. But primarily, it's this microphone that's the big thing that I uh, brought back with me. Let's see, I just started classes here about, mm, I think we started on Tuesday, and today is Thursday, so I'm in the first couple of days. Uh, I've experienced every single class that I'm going to have so far for this semester, all four. I mean, you know, it's it's syllabus day. I've only had one of my classes for two days, which is a Spanish class, uh, so we've actually done um, some content in that. Uh, let's see, otherwise, you know, nothing much is new. Um, in terms of uh, what's happening for me, but there is some new stuff hopefully uh, happening with this uh, particular episode starting here. So uh, obviously having uh, recorded and edited the first one, uh, as of the current moment, said first episode is not yet uploaded, which is frustrating to me, but uh, that's mostly because I'm learning uh, some new things, like I exported it and I was getting, oh, I was, I, I, I've had it uploaded a couple of times, but the first time I uploaded it, uh, Google was like, we can't up- let you upload more than 15 minutes, in which I learned, oh, I just, I had to hit the verify account stuff. I didn't even know that that was a thing for uh, longer than 15 minute videos, but you know what? That's fine. I did that. Then I uploaded it again. And then I checked it today, I don't know, for some reason I was just like, oh, let me look at it. Well, actually I know why, because I need to try to pull out some uh, images that I'm just going to continue using, like the logo that you saw at the very start of this episode, and hopefully at the very start of that first episode as well, because you should watch it, uh, because I am, no matter what, I'm uploading it before I'm uploading this. That's just how it is, um, even though I'm recording this, and the first one is yet to be uploaded. Uh, and then I found out, so, you know, I, I added the song. Um, it's a, not, it's not a Creative Commons, I believe it's a Creative, Co- creative Commons <laughs> attribution piece by um, uh, the artist Ketza. I usually, well, I've always found his work on the FMA, the Free Music Archive. Great place to find uh, royalty-free music, by the way, um, especially for podcasts and uh, the like. Uh, however, I found out that that, so... I basically just have the start of one of his songs um, for the intro and then at the very end there. But it turns out I forgot to, I don't know, in the middle, like I moved it 
so that it wouldn't, you know, be there later on, but, you know, just so I could cut it, cut off the song at the, um, you know, faded out. But I guess I forgot to cut out the middle and the ending bit of it after I'd moved it. Oops. So now I need to go back and fix that, and that should be everything I need to do with that episode, and then it will be done. Um, of course, the problem with that is that now... Now that means I need to, well, I, okay, there's a computer downstairs I could use um, in this dormitory, but the problem with that is that it's also uh, the computer that people go to to um, get documents to print, so I really don't want to spend too long on that. Uh, it does have Premiere, so I can use it. I just, I don't want to use it for too long, otherwise I, I mean, I have to go to the library. Now, fortunately, there's, an, there's a library that is relatively close to where I am, but I really wasn't planning on going back out today to do that, because I have homework that I need to do as well. Um, otherwise, well, what sorts of other things did I learn from doing the first episode that I want to change in this one? Uh, so one, one thing that's going to just be true, hopefully, about the first episode, and hopefully no future ones, is that I'm going to upload it just as itself, just as one long single piece. Um, but with this episode and onward, I'm hoping to um, do the full episode and also um, upload segments. So one of the things I'm... Uh, uh, I acknowledged in the last episode was that, you know, after a while, I have to get up and hit the record button again because the camera can only record up to 30 minutes. And so then I made this realization that, well, wait a second. I mean, you know, sometimes it's not going to work out perfectly and it's still going to have, like, the gross sorts of chops in it. But most of the time, I should have segments that are fewer than 30 minutes long so hopefully i can just you know be like okay i'm at the end of this thing that i want to talk about and then that's where i'll stop recording so then i can upload like you know basically the final piece is just going to be a super cut of every single little segment and that's what i'm going to upload first and then later on i'm going to upload the each little segment you know like the like if i were to if i were to do the first episode, but that's going to be a much bigger uh, pain than it's worth to me. If I can just start here, I feel like that's fine. Um, but, you know, let's suppose I were to do the first episode. I have, like, intro. Let me upload intro. And then upload... Um, oh my goodness, this was the first topic. Animal Crossing. There we go. And then upload um, the Amiibo segment. Because some people are just interested in, like, those individual topics as opposed to... Um, the entire hour and a half extravaganza. Um, I think those are the top things I learned. There might be one other thing that I'm forgetting right now, but you know, those those are really the big lessons from doing this first episode that I'm hoping to take into doing this episode and then doing future episodes so that they can be so much better. Um, so yeah, yeah. yeah have to go to the library or well preferably if I can just go downstairs and get that done quickly re-render the first video uh, get it uploaded and yeah then we should be uh, you know then I can just focus on this episode entirely after that first one is all said and done um 
All right, so I think I think that's all I have to say for this intro. So um, I think we'll be going into our first topic here shortly. And this is see, here we go. We're going to do some testing here. I'm going to behind the scenes hit the record button on the back of the camera so it stops, and then you know start it up again when we get into our first topic. So yeah, let's just see how that goes. All right, so let's get into this first. Well, actually, now that I think about it, there are two other little things I'd like to quick uh, talk about before I get into the first topic, but I promise this is going to be the first topic. Uh, I noticed that, so, you know, here I can just, you know, hit the button on the camera, whereas over uh, when I was at home, I actually had to get up and walk around, which caused the camera to move around a little bit, which is a bit annoying. No, I don't have to do that, which is great. I can just sit down and the camera is going to stay in the same spot. Uh, but anyway, let's let's get into our first actual topic here, which is the big news of the new Super Smash Bros. Ultimate Fighter. So, I don't know how you could have missed it, but on January 16th, 2020, the fifth and final member of the Super Smash Bros. Ultimate Fighter Pass was revealed. And that character is Byleth from Fire Emblem Three Houses for the Nintendo Switch. Um, which is a strategy RPG that was released in July of 2019. Um, God, I, don't, I don't remember what entry it is in the Fire Emblem series. <laughs> it's funny, Sakurai actually went through and uh, counted out the entries when he was uh, giving his presentation. So I just, I'm going to have that uh, video linked in, in the description here. So you should just be able to check that out and you can find out that number right there. But the point is, it's in like the teens somewhere around there like I think it's my gut wants to say 17 I could be wrong um this is uh this is the fifth and final fighter of the uh, first fighters pass but of course during the Terry presentation Sakurai announced that there will be a second uh set of DLC fighters uh which was officially revealed as the fighters pass volume two wow how creative from the fighters pass number one um, you know, I think the presentation is overall fine, but let's just talk about the reveal. What do I think about the reveal? Um, I went in expecting to be unimpressed, because after all, how could the team possibly top the characters that I already revealed? You have to remember, we had Joker from Persona 5, which is a huge recent game, especially uh, for Japanese players. Persona's always been significantly more popular there, but obviously with Persona 5 in particular, um, the Persona series has seen an increase in popularity here uh, in the West. Uh, the second one was Hero from the Dragon Quest series, and there's no, there's no actual character in the Dragon Quest series just called Hero. It's just the protagonist from four different games, three, four, Dragon Quest eight, and uh, Dragon Quest eleven. but you know, the team used Dragon Quest eleven s because that's the brand new Nintendo Switch version. Um, then the third one, which was, you know, this is the highlight for me as somebody who's been a huge Nintendo person. And like, especially, you know, I remember I talked about in the first episode, Donkey Kong Country being one of my first uh, games ever. So I've always had a bit of a connection to Rare. The third one was Banjo and Kazooie. Huge, huge news for a whole variety of reasons. But, you know, I, th I think I'll talk about that some other time. And then the fourth one was Terry Bogard uh, from the Fatal Fury series and the King of Fighters as well. 
So yeah, you know, when, when you've got this huge, huge incline of like amazing characters, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure some could argue that Terry is a bit of a drop down from Banjo or Banjo's a drop down from Hero. No, whatever. These are all big, important characters. I've just never seen representation in Smash Brothers. Um, I really wasn't expecting to be super duper wowed by whoever the last one was going to be. Um, you know, the presentation itself I found to be pretty standard. You know, I guess I, I watched all the other ones. I watched the Hero one, I watched the Banjo one, I watched the Terry one, so it just seemed like this video was about the same as the others. There was really nothing in it that was super duper interesting um, in terms of just, here's how the presentation is, other than we're going to actually reveal the character today. Uh, now, the thing about this one is there was a there's quite a bit of disdain for Byleth being the last choice and I mean I kind of brought it up myself I was a bit unimpressed but I was really wasn't expecting anything super huge so I wasn't super disappointed I'm just, I'm just glad that there's another character in Smash Brothers like I will never ever take for granted Sakurai's work on this game because oh my god it seems like the man's about to kill himself every single time he works on something in terms of you know especially for Smash Brothers, because there's so much stuff. I mean, he, he is <laughs> the definition of a perfectionist in terms of how his games need to come out. Like, he, he makes sure that every single little detail is there perfectly, and, you know, I, I, I commend that. Um, but in terms of Byleth, people are just kind of left feeling bleh, flat. Like, really? This is how it's ending? That's kind of the idea. And, you know, just to kind of give credence to that, I, I haven't watched the video, but I at least saw the thumbnail for um, uh, Professional Smash Brothers Player Zero's video on the drama about this presentation. Um, and, you know, obviously the thing in the thumbnail that stood out to me was that it included the number of dislikes on Byla's presentation at the time of him releasing that video, uh, which was shown to be 63,000 dislikes. Which is, you know, that's, that's quite a bit of dislikes. Um, now, in between then and now, that number has um, still significantly risen. I'm pretty sure it's around 70,000, but it also has quite a few likes because of just people trying to balance it out because they're like, I mean, it's, it's really not that important. Um, now, I went and checked the presentation, which, like I said, I'll have linked for you to view. And indeed, compared to every other presentation, uh, Byleth has this inordinate number of dislikes. Um, when I did check it, it still showed 63,000, but like I said, between me writing this and then now me recording this, that number has uh, gone up. So, why is there all this disdain for Byleth? And you know, maybe let me just put it out there right away. It doesn't actually have anything to do with uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses. That ended up being one of a bunch of people's favorite game of the year. Um, if I remember correctly, it won Best Strategy Game at the Game Awards. So it's not a matter of the game being unpopular or people thinking that the game is bad or, you know, whatever it is. Um, I actually saw, uh, well, someone made like a, a big picture out of all of these Twitter posts, but someone gave a very um, wonderful explanation for why there was all this disdain for Byleth. But uh, here I'm going to give my own two cents worth on it. And some of my reasons are the same as what you'll see in that post. I don't remember who made it. Again, look, because I don't have a Twitter account, and all I saw was the image um, collecting all the posts. But if someone knows what it is, if someone can find that post, please, please add it into uh, the comments, and I will uh, try to pin it, possibly. Um, 
because I think it's very important for people to know what exact, like, where um, all these problems are stemming from. So, um, now as I see it, there are really two clear reasons for why Byleth is seen so negatively. Number one, before Byleth, there are already seven Fire Emblem characters in Smash Brothers, and those are Marth, Lucina, Roy, Krom, Ike, Robin, and Corrin. Um, and then just give some background on here. Um, Super Smash Brothers Melee is where Marth and Roy debuted for Smash Brothers. Um, then Ike was added into Super Smash Brothers Brawl on the Wii. Roy was taken out. Uh, then in Super Smash Brothers for Wii U, Marth and Ike returned, and then uh, Lucina was added as a clone character for Marth, and Robin was added as another representative for Fire Emblem Awakening because that was the most recent game at the time of Super Smash Brothers for 3DS and Wii U's release. And then he would actually be someone who's a little bit more interesting than just another sword fighter like Marth and Ike and Lucina because Robin is... Well, in the game, I believe he, in Awakening, he's considered a tactician, but he tends to use, uh, he uses a lot of magic. Um, then, when the downloadable content was being made for Super Smash Bros. for 3DS and Wii U, um, Roy was brought back as a downloadable content character, and one of the last two characters added to the game was Corrin, who is the protagonist of um, Fire Emblem Fates for the Nintendo 3DS. And then... Uh, ultimately, simply added Krom to the roster as an Echo fighter for Roy. Um, Echo is basically just a fancy way of saying a, a clone character. So, like, Lucina is now Marth's Echo fighter. Um, so, suffice it to say, given that Ultimate already had these seven uh, Fire Emblem characters, players already felt there were plenty of them. You know, it, it's that simple. We don't need another... Um, and, you know, I can certainly agree. I was I was not excited for having another Fire Emblem character. I would have preferred a character from pretty much any other series. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I understand because, you know, Nintendo wants to do some cross-promotion, and that's the interesting thing about a lot of the Fire Emblem characters is Marth and Roy were added into Melee because, well, well first off, Marth was already, uh, you know, the famous protagonist for the first game, and Roy was the protagonist of the new Fire Emblem game that was releasing at the time. And then, you know, a similar thing is true for Ike in Brawl with um, uh, the GameCube game, Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, and then Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn was out on the Wii, where it might have been releasing. That's not a game that I know the release date um, for off the top of my head, um, unfortunately. But the point is, a lot of Fire Emblem representation in Smash has actually been a lot about um, cross-promotion, of all things. Um, but there's been just so many characters already in the game. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's just unfortunate. And that, that gets into my second reason. Speaking of unfortunate, reason number two, Byleth was released at the worst possible time. I need you to keep in mind here, the first five DLC characters were uh, Piranha Plant, which despite being a Mario character... Uh, in my opinion, is so out there and creative to be accepted. It's, you know, it's not something like Toad. I mean, there are people who want Toad as a Smash Brothers character, even though he's part of, always been historically part of Peach's moveset. Um, but it, it it's not a character who's that simple. It's not somebody who's part of, like, 
the base Mario Kart roster, the base uh, Mario Party roster already. Especially because most of those characters are already, already in the game. Now, Piranha Plant's different. Piranha Plant has never been playable in anything other than maybe like the occasional Mario Party minigame. Um, uh, then the second one we had was Joker from Persona 5, which is a new game and a new series never seen on a Nintendo system. That's, that's one of the big things about, um, characters like Joker, and then you can even look back to, uh, Cloud in Super Smash Bros. for 3DS and Wii U, who also returned for Ultimate, is like, Final Fantasy VII to that point had never been on a, uh, Nintendo system, so it's huge to get these new characters that people don't associate with Nintendo yet in that that's part of what gives people that feeling that Smash Brothers is meant to be a celebration of games. That's even something Sakurai acknowledged in the presentation, um, which has its major pros, and as we can see with this incident, a lot of major cons. Uh, then the here uh, the second character, or I guess it's the third character that's DLC in general, second for the Fighters Pass was Hero, consisting of four Dragon Quest protagonists, as I talk about. Uh, the series is huge in Japan, in Japan not to mention how um, the series is really the progenitor of the JRPG. It is the, like, when you think of what is the basic, most obvious JRPG, you think of Dragon Quest. Uh, the third one was Banjo and Kazooie, which was a huge, huge reveal for a couple of reasons. First off, Banjo Kazooie, Banjo Kazooie series started in the Nintendo 64, so Banjo has that um, history of being on a Nintendo, Nintendo platform. Particularly, I mean, just rare in general has a history of being with Nintendo between the NES, just uh, games Battle Toads, and then you know, would you believe that they developed games like A Nightmare on Elm Street for the NES? Uh, I know you wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Um, and then Donkey Kong Country Trilogy, Killer Instinct, those are classic Super Nintendo games. And then you know, the big ones on the Nintendo 64. There was also Killer Instinct Gold on the N64. Um, but the big ones that people always remember are Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, uh, GoldenEye 007, Perfect Dark, Conker's Bad Fur Day, um, you know, even lesser known ones like Blast Core and Jet Force Gemini. Those are all Nintendo 64 games, so Rare definitely had its pedigree with Nintendo by this point. Now, their last Nintendo game being Star Fox Adventures on the Nintendo GameCube, that one wasn't so great. Um, and then really once Rare was uh, bought by Microsoft, that's when things really uh, continued to go downhill for the company, unfortunately. That's not to say that they didn't make any good games, um, but they certainly didn't have the same sort of, um, the same kind of status that they had had with Nintendo. So people, the point is, people associate Banjo more with Nintendo than they do Microsoft. So that, that was huge in the sense that, like, I think people are like, we're getting this character back, which is true, obviously. But it, it definitely feels like Banjo is more at home on the Nintendo Switch compared to... Um, the Xbox One, or the upcoming Xbox Series X. And, I mean, speaking of which, the fact that there are two hardware makers collaborating, that's pretty much unprecedented. And granted, we've had things like that happening before with crossplay, and I mean, Minecraft is owned by Microsoft, and it's on pretty much every system known to man. Um, this, this is like the second, the, the next level, because again, 
Banjo was already on the Nintendo 64 uh, back in the day. And now it's owned by Microsoft, and now we're getting to see these two publishers who, like, we you know, think of, like, Girl, console wars, and which is silly. Um, we see these two coming together in, like, a, almost like an olive branch sort of um, acceptance. That, that, that is huge in terms of the gaming space. And then the last DLC character released for Byleth was Terry Bogard from Fatal Fury and the King of Fighters, as I mentioned, among other SNK fighting games. Um, so Terry was interesting in that he was really prolific for Hispanic gamers. That's something that I, I had no idea that uh, the King of Fighters and Fatal Fury was particularly um, popular in Latin American countries. Hey, you know what? Great. That I think that's awesome that we're getting... Um, characters who are very popular in regions that we don't necessarily think of. Like, I think a lot of people just think of Japan and the West. They don't think of Japan and North America and Central America and South America and Europe. Um, plus, I mean, Terry makes a great representative for the Neo Geo as well. Okay, there's someone doing some hammering somewhere here in the background. That's one of the only, uh, flaws with being here compared to at home is that I certainly have less noise control, um, so I must apologize for that in advance, but, you know, that, that is what it is. Anyway, so now that we've had these five characters that are already out, the sixth and final DLC character for DLC pack, uh, the Fighters Pass number one, really had a lot to live up to, to put it simply, and... To me, Byleth's reaction can really be chalked up to uh, timing, as far as I'm concerned. It's just the fact that he had this spot as the last DLC character. Um, now, remember in the presentation, though, Sakurai mentioned specifically how he had to play a, a beta build of Fire Emblem Three Houses to understand Byleth, uh, probably in June of 2019 or earlier, and he still couldn't have the character done until January of 2020, so... It takes a long time to make just one of these characters. I can't, ima I can't imagine how long it took just to make... E even remaking some of the original characters, I'm sure it takes quite a while. Um, but obviously a lot, a lot of that is already pre-planned. Um, so, in an ideal world, though, where Sakurai really wasn't um, held back by... Well, this game isn't out yet, so now I have to, like, mess around and try to figure out this character already. Um, let's just say Fire Emblem had been, already been out in 2017, for example. Um, really, what I would have done is I would have released characters in a different order just to avoid a fiasco like this. Um, now, of course, part of the problem with this is then you get into the E3 problem where, with E3... Um, two characters were announced. E3 is where Hero was announced and where Banjo was announced. And you know, part of why that was so good is because those, like I said, are huge characters. One's that's huge in Japan, one that's huge uh, in the West, at least in the United States. Um, so really, those are the two kinds of characters that you want to um, have shown at E3. But I, I honestly would not have done that knowing that Byleth was going to be one of the characters because I would have what I would have wanted to do is have the hype climb up continually even if it meant that E3's Smash Brothers reveals were a little flatter so the order I would have gone with for them I mean Piranha Plant was its own thing 
it was like an extra special edition, so that is just going to stay where it is. But in terms of the fighter pass, the order I would have gone is Joker first, just keep him in the same spot, because it really doesn't matter where he falls. Then I would have done Terry, because that's that still will be exciting. It's still exciting for... He's still exciting for Latin American gamers. Um, and then, I, I, just in general, I feel like Terry would have gotten the same reaction no matter what slot he was in. I would have put Byleth right in the middle. Because, again, you know, he's kind of the, like, eh, that's cool sort of character, unless you're really into Fire Emblem. Then he's, you know, he's awesome, right? And then for the, I would have had Hero, and then Banjo and Kazooie be the last two. Now, really, whichever order Hero goes, and whichever spot Banjo goes, could depend on one's preference. It really doesn't matter. I just, you know, you could go Hero Banjo, or you could go Hero Banjo, or you could go Banjo Hero. It really doesn't matter. Those are both just both very exciting characters for each of the populations who care about them. Um, well, let's see. Uh, now, of course, I must always give a reminder to stop progressing soccer about this. Now, first off, I'd like to specifically mention again um, that when the f DLC started being worked on, that it was Nintendo who decided which characters would be added. Now, maybe... Well, okay. I've heard slightly conflicting reports on how this happened. So I've heard some where it's like, well, Nintendo made this list and he gets to pick them, or it was he made a list and Nintendo basically gave the final call. I don't know. But the point is, he doesn't, he doesn't have a ton of autonomy in picking the characters like there's de there's definitely some of nintendo the company meddling in which characters get happening get into the game and phones don't but regardless he's doing the work so you can't you can't really be mad at him he's it, it's the old don't kill the messenger sort of thing um plus i mean he works to the bone in making smash something that remember he didn't necessarily want to do after melee i uh, i mean he left hal laboratory after uh, Kirby Air Ride on the GameCube, and because he, he was like, I don't want to keep doing sequels. I'm sick of doing sequels. I want to do something new. Um, but then he came back for Brawl and Smash 4 and Ultimate after his dear friend Satoru Iwata asked him, because he was like, you're the only person who really, really understands Smash Brothers like this as the creator, so you, please, I need you to do this. And you're like, okay, fine. I would be happy in doing it. And, you know, I could definitely say that if I were him after making Super Smash Bros. Brawl and seeing a bunch of the reactions to, like, I mean, just in terms of the work and in terms of, like, how people thought the Subspace Summer series was a little silly, I, not, not to mention, like, how the community gets over characters and the lack thereof, I'd be like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm getting out of here. So the fact that he's still doing this, in my opinion, is huge in and of itself. Plus... It's a video game. It's okay. It's okay. It's just a video game. Just because your character doesn't get in. And I mean, hey, I know I have the characters I want. I know friends who have different characters that they want, and they'll be super ecstatic when that character does or doesn't get in. It, 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 it's fine. It may or may not happen one day, but it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, I just think that in general, people have gone over the top because it's still okay to be disappointed. It's just not okay to be like, you know, calling for terrible, terrible things to happen to Sakurai or the team or Nintendo because your character didn't get in. 
So what about a bunch of the other stuff in this presentation? That, that's mostly what I wanted to go over, but I just have a couple of other things that I want to talk about. Um, the stage that was revealed is the Gareg Mach Monastery, which is basically just the main area shown off in the game. It just seems like it's a pretty standard change location stage, kind of like Castle Siege appropriately. You know, another Fire Emblem stage. You know, again, it looks fine. It doesn't look like anything super special to me, but I'm, it's going to be fun to play on. The Mii costumes look really good. I, I, I could have done them without the Ubisoft ones. Like, there's an Assassin's Creed one, and then there's a Rabbids hat, but whatever. I mean, they're 75 cents. I'm going to download it just at least. You know, if, if someone wants to make a Mii and they want to have the option of using the Rabbid hat, whatever. That's their thing. Um, now, two that I saw people being really excited about were the Mega Man X and the Mega Man.exe costumes, but... Um, they're just coming back to the game. And if, if anything, actually, I would have been upset about those because the thing about those two, and then in the last uh, DLC pack, there was the Proto Man and the um, Zero costumes added, but those were already DLC in Smash for 3DS and Wii U. So then now they're paid DLC again instead of being included already on the cartridge for Smash Ultimate. When other former DLC costumes were included, you see how that might be frustrating for someone like me who's just like, oh, well, wait, why isn't Proto Man already in the game? He was DLC, and but these other DLC ones are back. Ugh. And, of course, there was one costume that really stole the show, which was Cuphead, which is, it's appropriate. I actually got Cuphead a couple of weeks ago, so I, I haven't played a ton of it. I just I don't have a ton of time to play a ton of games, particularly because one evil game that we will talk about another day that I referenced in the last episode, stupid... Mm. Oh, Crash Team Racing. I love that game. I hate that game. But the point is it takes time away from me, and then I can't play stuff like Cuphead. But it's still exciting because, again, it's another independent character in the game in costume form. And that's huge. That is humongous news. I will certainly, certainly pick up those costumes when they release with Byleth. Um, especially the Cuphead one, if only because it comes in another song, just like what happened with the Sans costume uh, coming with uh, Megalovania with Terry. And then the last little bit, the Fighter's Pass Volume 2 is revealed. It's going to have six characters for $30. Uh, I'm going to pick it up, just like I did the first one, because I want the whole roster available to me. It, it's that simple. Like, I know there are going to be characters that I don't care about. Like, I'm going to try Byleth. I'm going to play Byleth. But, you know, that might not end up playing him in the long run. And then the same is true, like, for me with Hero. I don't really love Hero. Hero's okay, but, you know, I still want him in my roster regardless. Um, so no matter what, it's a fine investment. And then I expect it's going to go about the same as the first Fighter's Pass. Who knows? Like, some characters are going to be like, whoa, this is awesome. Other characters are going to be like, eh, I mean, that's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Cool. It's fine. Um, yeah, so that's... What I have to say regarding the new Smash Brothers presentation, um, if I think of anything later, I guess I'll probably just blurt it out, but that's about it. Uh, why don't we move on to our next topic then? And now I'd like to tackle another interesting uh, gaming question, not specifically in a Nintendo question, so that's great. Look at me broadening my horizons in these topics. Yay! Uh, the next topic that I'd like to go over is E3. Is it losing relevance? 
So you may remember that last year, in 2019, Sony, who makes the PlayStation brand of consoles, uh, decided to skip out on attending the Electronics Entertainment Expo, uh, which is just better known as E3, because it's three E's. Wow. Um, well, according to this article by Christopher Dring from GamesIndustry.biz, PlayStation will not participate in E3 2020. So this is the second year in a row that Sony is choosing not to attend E3. Um, quote, the firm told GamesIndustry.biz that it does not feel the vision for the event is right for what it has planned for this year. Instead, it will attend hundreds of consumer events to showcase upcoming games for PS4 and PS5, unquote. So, Sony just doesn't think that E3 really fits the vision for what they want to do with the PS4 and the PS5. It's, it's that simple. Uh, now, I want to clarify something about this, is that E3 kind of just losing popularity and going down isn't necessarily unprecedented. In fact, companies choosing to bow out of E3 also is not unprecedented, because you have to remember that um, Nintendo bowed out of having traditional press conferences press conferences in 2013. That's seven years ago now. God, I feel old despite not even being 20. Um, anyway, yeah, in 2013, uh, Nintendo decided instead to uh, present a special Nintendo Direct presentation during the show, and uh, they've been doing that ever since. Now, Nintendo does continue to have games on the E3 show floor. Um, and that's one element that the article really doesn't make clear, which is um, just because Sony's not going to have a press conference, does that mean that they're also not going to have PS4 and PS5 games out to show off? Or uh, is it just not going to be anything? Um, now, one other little element of this is that I also did some additional research, and I, I couldn't find any indication that Sony had games out at E3 2019. So that just makes me think that Sony's not going to be at E3 2020 at all. So what does this mean? Is E3 dying? Is E3 going to be dead? I don't think so, at least not yet. Maybe in five, ten years. I, you know, I can't see it going on much, much longer, but it, it's just not, it's not dying right now. Now, to clarify, though, so the tension with this, um, with between... I think, it's the, I think it's the ESA and Sony, and then I think the article, yeah, the article mentions uh, Electronic Arts EA in here, is that they want E3 to be more of a, a fan event, while uh, other publishers and then the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, is totally fine with letting E3 continue as an industry event. Um, and to me, it's really interesting that there's this tension here, because regardless, um, over the years, E3 has had more and more people in attendance, and I guarantee you that not all 60,000 people that are attendance are part of the industry, whether that's like developers, publishers, stockholders, media. Not all 60,000 of them are there from the industry. Fans attend E3. In fact, let me just put it out there right now. That has always been one of my dreams, is to go to E3. Um, but it's definitely, like, that. The E3 as a show is definitely on 
borrowed time. Kind of like places like GameStop, actually. Um, and I think eventually all the console makers are going to uh, transition to having just periodic broadcasts on upcoming games. So, uh, again, I, I bring up Nintendo. Like I said, they started doing the E3 Directs in 2013, but they've been hosting... Uh, Nintendo Direct presentations as a whole since February 2012, which actually, as the time of recording this, is almost eight years ago exactly. God, I feel old. Uh, I know I say this, and I'm, I'm really a super young person. Um, Sony also began broadcasting their own uh, show, which is similar to what Nintendo does. They make the State of Play presentations. They started those in March of 2019. Again, it's a similar structure. It's like, periodically, oh my goodness, there's going to be a State of Play, and we're going to announce a bunch of new PlayStation games, and that's what happens. I hear the first two haven't been particularly exciting, especially when you do compare them to directs, but I'm sure Sony's going to get better at them. Uh, and then, finally, Microsoft has broadcast their show Inside Xbox once a month, starting in March 2018. Now, I'm sure I haven't seen any of those, but the fact that they do these episodes once a month, they're clearly not all just announcing games. I mean, there's definitely game announcements in it, but there, there's probably a lot more background, like, um, here are these developers, and here what here's what they do, and a lot more detailed updates on games, which is certainly interesting, and I would definitely... Uh, value seeing more of that put out there, but I also think that's more what the game media itself is supposed to do. And uh, like I said, they've been doing that since March of 2018. Now, let's let, let, let's let's be honest here. Console manufacturers already have these shows. Why would they not use them for free when they have information ready that they want to show off? Instead of having to network with a live show and probably pay a bunch of people to come to it and pay traveling, and that just sounds like a lot more of an expense and a lot more of a just a pain to try to coordinate. Now, that's not to say I want to see E3 go away, if only so I can attend it once, but also because of all the unique experiences that come out of it. You know, people get to play exclusive game demos at E3. Like, I can't tell you how many games there are that it's like, Oh, I'm excited for that. I hope there's a demo for it. And then there's, you know, like a great example of that for me is like, um, I had, I shut off the Amiibo in the last episode, but The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. I would love to play a demo for that. But there's no demo released for that on the eShop. But people at E3 got to play a demo for it. So there are all these like special game demos that are out there. They'll be great to preserve. And the only reason that they get made is because there are shows like E3 out there, and I think it would be a huge shame if um, the experience of having a bunch of these demos and unique pieces and you know, big giant props made for a show like this just suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth, because people like that stuff. I think it's certainly very special. People take pictures, they make costumes, I and mean, granted, there are other conventions that are meant to be for fans about selling um, games with vendors and stuff, but there's not, like, the big developers aren't there. You'll definitely get your small independent developers there um, wanting to show off their games and get people to try them out, but it's not the same as having the 
30-plus person long line to go try out this big new PlayStation game, this big new Xbox game that everybody's excited about. Um, it would just be a shame if that was gone. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I don't really have a ton of thoughts on E3. I'm excited to see what comes out of it this year. If it ends up that um, even Microsoft and Nintendo and some third-party publishers decide it's time to officially bow out, then, you know, I'll, I'll just look forward to whatever other presentations are recorded throughout the year, watch those, see how they go, and because no matter what, these games are still going to come out. They're going to be exciting. Um, it should be a good time. Jeez, uh, door. Uh, why don't we move on to our next topic here. All right, now let's talk about something controversial. Ooh. Um, we're going to talk about some game reproduction. Now that can include things like the game itself. A game label, a box, manuals, you know, that type of stuff. And it's funny, one of the reasons that I was thinking about this comes down to one of my inspirations for this very own show here, um, which is the Completely Unnecessary Podcast, otherwise known as the CU Podcast, hosted by uh, Pat the NES Punk, Pat Contry, and Ian Ferguson, and obviously they have quite a bit of opinions on game reproduction, particularly because, um, so Pat, who's on that podcast, is a retro video game collector. If I remember correctly, he has the entire official NES library, which is like 800-some games. That's a lot. Um, so and you want the real deal piece, the real game. You don't want something that's faked, particularly in your collection, so... He has a lot of opinions on that. The other guy on there, like I said, Ian Ferguson, um, he works at a retro game shop, and game stores can't take reproductions because they're illegal. That's one thing that we're going to talk a lot about here is how much reproduction is illegal. Yay! Um, but regardless, other people, just they have a variety of opinions on game reproduction and whether or not it is a valid cause. Um, now, like I said, it is still no matter what, going to be illegal to reproduce games and sell them, but you're still going to get your Chinese bootleg games abounding, and uh, I mean, that's not even to mention the variety of independent sellers who make reproductions of uh, real games, which that, that that's a super simplified explanation of how games are reproduced and what they are, but th th those are really the important things that we need to know here. So, what do I think about game reproduction? And to me, um, and we're looking at this as a moral question, not as a legal question, because it's illegal, period. There's no ifs, ands, buts, but me, no. Reproducing a game is illegal, but whether or not it's moral is a totally different question. Now, in general, I would argue it's really not a moral thing to do, particularly if you're talking about a modern game that's still being sold and making money, um, but I also don't think that that's usually what happens, and most of the time when people reproduce their games, it's not meant to be malicious or to hurt publishers or developers, um, but, you know, in most cases, if there's, if, if there's a game that's already real and out there, don't reproduce it. I would frown upon it. But, 
I think there are, there's just a few questions that we need to uh, go over here to really get a full scope on whether making a reproduction is okay in a situation, whether it's fair, whether you should or shouldn't do it. So here's question one. How common is the game that you want to reproduce? You know, why would you want to reproduce a game that's as common as the NES Super Mario Brothers that you get for like $5 or less in a bunch of different forms, right? There's no reason to do that. You can get an official copy in so many easy ways, whether it's like, I'm going to pay the, I already have a Switch, I'm going to pay the $20 a year to get the NES games on there and be able to play online. There you go. There's your copy of the NES Super Mario Brothers. Oh, I can spare the $5 on the Wii U or the 3DS eShop. There's a copy of NES Super Mario Brothers. I have an, an original Nintendo Entertainment System. I want the cartridge. And you can get it with Duck Hunt for $5 or less at your local game shop. There is literally no reason to get a reproduction of a game that's that common. Now, I could see a legitimate reason to make a reproduction of games that are very hard to find, like... Um, Klonoa Door to Phantom Isle for the PlayStation, because that game sells for $200 plus. But that really gets into one of the key, key tenets of this, which is you cannot resell that game. If you go through the effort of trying to buy it, you cannot get rid of it. It is one of the scummiest things you can do, because you know, if you're selling your reproduction game to someone else who wants a real copy, and they don't know it's a reproduction... That's not good. You shouldn't do that. Now, if you just want to play the game and have the experience of having all the stuff like the box, then... I don't know, I guess you could get it. But at that point, I would argue that it would just be better to emulate the game for free or download an official copy on a newer platform that just happens to host it. So like, I, you know, I brought up Klonoa just now. If you really want to play it, I would much, like, and you don't want to spend $200 on an official PS1 disc. Either get the Wii remake for, I think the max I've seen that is like $50 or less, or download it on the PSN store on the PS4. It's, it's not, like, duh. There's no reason to not get an official copy of a game that already came out and is available for you. But now we get to question two, which is really the truly interesting question here to me, which is, did the game come out in your region or in your in a language that you understand? And to me, this is the only reasonable scenario where purchasing a reproduction game is even remotely acceptable. It, because I've actually wanted a few reproduction games, but all of those games are games that have not come out here in some way, shape, or form. So I think the one that everyone always brings up, Mother 3. I want to play Mother 3 on the Game Boy Advance. I want to play it on the GBA instead of on my computer here, because that's half the fun, is playing it on the actual system. But Mother 3 never came out in English, so I'm going to have to get a reproduction card if I want to play it on the GBA or on a DS Lite or something. Um, another one, uh, actually one of the only ones I have, is uh, Ace Attorney Investigations 2. That was a fan translation into English. And so I have, an, have an, I have a cartridge for it that I can play on the DS, which is awesome! Because that's how the game is meant to be played. It's not meant to be played on a computer. It's meant to be played on the DS. Um, 
speaking of which, the Great Ace Attorney 1 and 2, or Daigyakuten Saiban 1 and 2 on the Nintendo 3DS. Those ones don't have reproduction cartridges, partially because the 3DS would need to be, like, hacked in order to play it. Um, so that's a lot more of a difficult sort of game to play. Um, the F-Zero BS Grand Prix. Not, that's not BS meaning the naughty BS. That's meaning broadcast satellite for the Satellaview, just so you know. And another one, like Mega Man and Base, also on the SNES. Those are just a few. There's certainly other ones I'm sure if I really thought about it, I could make a whole list of, like, here's some reproduction games I want. But the key that is true about all of these games is that they were never released in the West, much less in a language other than Japanese. Um, but fans worked to create English patches for them. Now, I would point out that you should still, like, people who are working on these should try if they can to make other patches, like now that there's an English patch, if you know English and you know Spanish, why not make a Spanish patch for this game? Why not make a French patch? Why not make a German patch for, you know, insert whatever game you want in that little box there. But the point is, the official games, there's not in a language that certain people can understand. And unless you want to go through a game that is heavily based on text without being able to understand it, I would say get a reproduction copy if you want to play it on the official hardware. Um, because to me, like I said, playing the game on the hardware that it was meant to be played on is integral to the experience. So, but at the same time, like like with the other reproductions, you can't you you still can't go and resell it because that would be illegal. Yay! Um, now here's question number three. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go away from the games and instead get into some of the um, little extras, the goodies that don't come with games much anymore, which is annoying, but it used to come with games. Things like the label, if you're talking about a cartridge-based game, or the manual. Don't get a reproduction of those if at all possible. Because the thing is, for a bunch of games, people will still sell manuals, or just the box, or better, like, you're, or, like, again, with a cartridge game, like an NES game, if your label, for some reason, has a huge rip on it, and that really bugs you, you, there is someone out there who is selling a better condition copy of the original game that you can find. And then there's someone who's going to take your copy with the gross label or manual or whatever you have and play it because they don't care. Like, that, that, that's one of the things about all these reproduction um, questions that I don't understand is a lot of times it's just people want to play the game. And sure, you'll get weirdos like me who are like, but I have to play it on this because that's... That's the experience, which I don't think is necessarily a wrong feeling to have. But, you know, for most people, they're going to be happy just like, can I play the game? And then they'll play the game and then be done with it. And, you know, in that case, they don't really need a reproduced copy. And again, like for people who want those extras, they are more likely to want an official copy of whatever extra thing it is. Like, why would I want someone to go out of their way to print a fake manual for me when they could, or when I could, just go on to eBay and probably buy a copy of the manual for $7 or so, right? Because I care about having the real thing. It doesn't make sense to me to get a fake copy of something 
because that's not part of the original experience. Now, here we go and get into the last question that I have here, it, which is, what's your financial situation? I know this seems like, well, well, that's a little bit of an odd question. It doesn't have anything to do with games, but yes. Yes, it does. If you can't afford a copy of an old game because you don't have the money for it, if you really want to play it, go ahead and emulate it. Now, that's still illegal if you don't have a copy of the game. This is my understanding, my understanding and this... I could be wrong. This could be a myth, to be fair. So do absolutely do not take my word on this. And if you do tell anyone, I didn't say it, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to say it right here. Um, if you really don't have the money and you want to play the game, it's fine. If there is a cheap way for you to play the game that you can afford, I would rather you do that. You know, like I said, if you can download... Clonoa Door to Phantom Isle for $5 on your PS3 or PS4, please do that. Don't, because Namco still, like, they did the work, they can get the money for the game. Um, but if you're really in such a dire place where you don't have the money for it, don't spend $200 on the rare game. Um, or, or at least wait and save your money until you can even remotely think about purchasing it. And, you know, I know that neither of those are really um, satisfying answers for what you should do. Um, it's, it's, it all comes back to this concept of game preservation. Uh, now, what is that? You might be like, oh, what do you mean game preservation? So, to me, it's better to make sure that we preserve real games and the contents that come with them. So the way that I like to think about it is, you know, it's like with comic books or even like with things like art, paintings. Reproduction games are like forged paintings. That, that, that's the analogy that I like to use here because they look the same. You get the same experience out of it, whether it's real or whether it's fake. But the people who want to make sure that the medium stays pure and preserved for future generations to see and experience... We'll just get confused. I mean, not even that, but they won't be showing off what is really meant to be shown to, you know, let people see. This is the actual work by the real people who made the official thing for future generations, which is important. And really, the only one, the only thing, the only reproduction to me that is worth it, and now this isn't talking about homebrew. Homebrew is its own uh, different topic that I'd like to talk about another time. The only reproduction that is even remotely worth it is translations. So why are they okay? If there's no other way to experience in a game that you understand, you still deserve to be able to play the game. If someone went out of their way to do the work of making, of taking a game that you originally couldn't understand and now allowing you to understand it, why? Why not get a reproduction of it? That's the, way, that's the way I see it. Because if anything, the company is just going out of their way to not let you play it. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily think Capcom made the wrong decision in um, not bringing over Ace Attorney Investigations to um, the DS because the game came out in 2011, so the 3DS came out in March, and um, Ace Attorney Investigations Miles Edgeworth, which came out in 2009, 
didn't really sell that well, so why would Capcom want to bring over the sequel when there's already new hardware to be working on? It's that simple. Why bring it over to the West then? Um, but I still want to play the game. So if someone went through the work to make it be possible for me to play the game and understand it, obviously I'm going to go for that method. Duh. Um, but sometimes I'll get into a unique scenario. That some, some This is rarely happens, but it's possible um, with games like one of them, uh, the one that sprang to mind immediately when I was talking about this was Trials of Mana. So for those who don't know, um, the games Secret of Mana and Final Fantasy Adventure are the first two games in the uh, Seiken Densensu series, which is just known as the Mana series in the West um, by Square Enix. And for the longest time, the third game in the series, Seiken Densensu 3, um, also on the SNES, was never released. But then in 2019 at E3, Square Enix just suddenly dropped the collection of Mana, which included an official translation of Seiken Densensu 3 for the first time as Trials of Mana. Um, and just so you know, Square Enix is also remaking the game for Nintendo Switch and PlayStation 4. Um, it is going to be released on the 24th of April 2020, so pretty soon here, actually. Um, and, you know, in this situation, if, if you're getting into the rare case or something like that happens where the company suddenly decides, oh, you know that game that we never brought to the West a long time ago? Let's bring it out. Or even, like, another example, I think about um, uh, Mother 1, the original, original Earthbound on the Nintendo was never, like, the Nintendo Entertainment System. NES was never released here, but then Nintendo in... Uh... 2014? Uh, I'm gonna have to... Let me check that right now, just to make sure I uh, have it right. This is a date that I care about, making sure it's accurate. Uh, Earthbound 2015, so uh, Nintendo released Earthbound... Uh, Earthbound... It was colloquially known for a while as Earthbound Zero. Um, but Nintendo released it as Earthbound Beginnings to the Wii U's Virtual Console in 2015. It's the same game as what you can play if you get a reproduction cartridge, but there's an official method, like I've said many times throughout this segment. Please go with the official one. And, you know, that's, that's, that, that's the pretty simple situation to me. If you already have the fans tran fan-translated copy of a game, you can sure keep it. But you really should purchase and play the official copy of a game once it releases, because people there people who went through and did the work and have a livelihood that depend on this game selling, and they really they might be they might not even know that there are unofficial copies of their game out there in another language, or they might not even like they probably don't realize it, or they just think it's a bad thing. So it'd be great for you to just go out of your way to support the support the developers because they do important important work on these games that we really want to play. And there's certainly not going to be any more if they aren't supported in the here and now. Uh, so I think that's all I have for um, game reproduction. Now we do have one more topic. Like I said last time, I'm going to be going with four topics because I mean right now I'm only looking at about an hour or so of podcast here, and I really want to reach that um, hour and a half if I can. So, yeah, let's just move on to the next one then.
And now I would like to get into the final topic that I'd like to cover in this podcast, which we're going to get into a little bit of a different term. I'm still keeping on the media train, but it's not going to be about video games. I'm going to discuss video games because they're relevant to this, um, but it's not explicitly about them. The topic that I'd like to go over is adaptations. How do we do them right? Because I find them to be actually a particularly interesting form of um, media. So when I say an adaptation, I mean when someone takes a particular work and turns it into another type of work. So um, I think an obvious example is like when you take the Harry Potter books and turn them from a book series into a movie series, they'll be adapting the book into film. Uh, and then, you know, one that I relate to is uh, Detective Pikachu. It started as a Nintendo 3DS game, and then it became a movie. So what sorts of problems usually come about in adaptations? Because adaptations usually don't go super smoothly. I mean, they can, but they're not very, very easy to do. And the thing that I find is that it's very hard to maintain the same type of the same feel from the original piece. Now, like I said many times in the first episode and here alone, my favorite type of media is uh, video games. <laughs> Jeez, the first three topics that I discussed here had to do with video games, so most of the adaptations uh, that I follow have to do with gaming. In fact, I already brought one of them up, which, which is uh, Detective Pikachu. Now, I have not played the game in whole. I've played the first chapter of the game because that's in the special demo. I own a copy of the game now. Um, I just haven't had the opportunity to play it yet. Um, however, I've also seen the movie twice. Um, and actually, from what I've played in the game, the movie actually adapts the game pretty well, like shockingly well. Um, for example, so uh, Detective Pikachu the movie hits um, a bunch of the beats from the game. For example, uh, early into the film, the character, you know, De Pikachu, Detective Pikachu and uh, Tim, that's the, the, the human character, uh, they have to fend off some Apom, which is like, a, it, it's a monkey sort of Pokemon with a hand on its tail. Uh, and then in the movie, Tim and Pikachu get chased away um, from Tim's dad's apartment by the Apom. Now in the game... And this is not spoilers because it is the first chapter, which is the bit I have played. Um, a group of APOM steal uh, a necklace, and Tim and Pikachu have to get it back. So the movie doesn't follow the game's plot exactly, which is good because those two types of plots are not the same kind of plot. You need that interactivity in a game as opposed to a movie where you're supposed to be kind of passive and watching it. Um, but it hits enough beats to feel like they're the same story you know does that make sense so it's not the exact same story but the movie and the game each have enough similar beats to still feel like they're the they're cut from the same cloth they're still the same sort of quality piece now at the same time so the game uses you know when you're talking about the pokemon itself it uses like the standard anime-ish pokemon art style and then he uses, like, I describe it as, like, a semi-anime art style for the human characters. I don't know, like, I look at things like, uh, so, 
the main character in it, again, is Tim. He has this, like, pointy kind of... trying to think of a good character that has a similar nose, but he has this, like, pointy triangular nose. I wanted to say George Jetson, but George Jetson, even though he has a long nose, has, like, a round nose, so it's not a, it's not a perfect comparison. Um, I can't exactly describe the art style, but... I don't know, for some reason, like, like there's a lot of maps in uh, the background, but it gives off, like, the game gives off, it gives off a very English vibe to me, and I, I don't know, maybe it's because the game's art reminds me of uh, stuff like Professor Layton, but entirely in 3D. Um, whereas the movie, being an adaptation of the game, went for a different visual style, which, again, it still feels like it's the same piece, if only because of the story and the characters and a bunch of the elements that make it up, but it goes for, it makes its own unique choices with it to make it its own entity. So um, the movie, unlike, so the game goes for this kind of, I don't know, it, it's kind of a pastel-y style. Again, it's, it's very English. How, how, I don't know. I'm sure someone listening to this probably has a significantly better description for it, but I, I, I just, I can't come up with an adjective for it. Whereas the movie um, mimics like a bunch of bold, colors like everything kind of pops like to me i look at the artwork for the dvd cover and it mimics films like the 1990 dick tracy that's a that to me is a perfect example of what it's similar to um whereas the movie also makes the pokemon look like they could be real animals i mean the human characters are played by people so of course they look real so that's, that's how it does its own thing, as opposed to, like, it could have gone totally animated and literally took the same, like, models and uh, art from the game and brought it to life as a film, but that's much less exciting than making it a full, real, live-action movie and, you know, going and doing its own separate thing. Because then it's like you're just, you're just watching the game, and at that point you may as well just go watch Let's Play. Um, and that's not even going into the, some of the little... Uh, liberties that the film takes, like uh, Tim Goodman, the name the film's main character, is played by Justice Smith in the film, who is a young black actor. While in the in the game, Tim is a white character. Uh, now, I would like to make uh, racial film representation a topic one day, but um, in Detective Pikachu, the fact that Tim's race doesn't match between both versions it, it doesn't take the quality away from either or. So the film still works because Tim is black. The game still works because Tim is white. It's really not important, but it's very good to see that uh, racial diversity in the film, especially because, um, you know, it is about one of the most popular video game franchises of all time, that people of every kind of background, you know, people of both sexes, people of all races, they play the game. So it's great to see that um, diverse representation for its characters. So I would consider Detective Pikachu a good adaptation. I actually also quite enjoy it as a film. I know a bunch of people really didn't enjoy it very much, but I liked it at least. Um, but how about a bad adaptation? <sighs> Let's talk about the Garfield movie. Now that's that's funny. This isn't that's something I haven't talked about on this podcast yet. But you know, it's the first, it's second episode, so great. I'm bringing it up now. I like comic strips. I don't read them religiously, if only because I don't get the newspaper, but if I did receive the newspaper, I would probably read the comic strips first. 
In fact, I used to buy a whole bunch of Garfield books. Um, and back at home, I, I have a couple of huge uh, stacks of them moved into my closet right now. Um, but there's also a reason that I really haven't bought any in the last six-ish years. And it's because Garfield really is not that interesting or funny after a while in comic strip form. Like, can you just kind of predict the punchline? Like, Garfield's watching TV. And the guy on TV says something. And then he says, like, another silly thing. And then there's a third thing that comes from the TV, and Garfield has a witty comment. That's the plot of, like, hundreds of comic strips. You can just kind of predict them. They get really dry and boring after a while. Uh, but I suppose it would be good for me to go into some of my background with Garfield. <clears throat> Hold on. Quick drink break. I'm sorry. My voice is getting... My, my throat is getting really dry here. I, I, I need it. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so I first saw Garfield through uh, Garfield and Friends, which is like the 1980s cartoon uh, on Boomerang. And I was like seven at the time when I saw it. And I, I think the show actually adapts Garfield pretty well. It, it still takes its own direction. You're stretching what is otherwise like a three to six panel comic strip into a seven minute cartoon. So it kind of has to do its own thing. But it still keeps like just the funny quirky tone about it um you know you still have things like garfield never moves i mean he moves his mouth in like emotions but he never talks he always you always hear him thinking um like john is still a huge dork and he gets into these weird funny outfits with like polka dot bow ties so it, it keeps enough familiar elements to still feel like it's the comic strip but in cartoon form for seven minutes, 14 minutes every week. Whereas the movie is an 80-minute, one long story. Uh, now, in short, the film retells the story of, like, how John is this guy who has Garfield, not a cartoonist. I, it, I don't remember if they make a point of him being a cartoonist or not, but I, obviously the, the show makes a point of it. Like I said, but you know, he's, there's this guy, John, and he has a cat named Garfield and he's love in love with this, uh, Dr. Liz Wilson, uh, who's Garfield's vet. And somehow through visiting Liz, John inherits a dog named Odie, which is not how it happened in the comic strip, but that is my own nerdy aside that I will leave for another time. Uh, that you probably won't hear on here, then I'll just talk about it on my own with friends or something. Anyway, so then in the movie, John takes, like, Odie to a dog show, and one of the people who's judging the dog show is, like, a TV personality, and he's so impressed that he tries to get Odie on TV. And then the TV guy tries whisking Odie away to New York with him to make money off of him. And then John and Garfield aren't going to see him ever again. So now Garfield goes on an adventure to get Odie back. Note, this has little to nothing to do with lasagna, coffee, or Garfield's standard quips. Now, that's not to say that the movie doesn't have any of those things in it. Um, but it's not in the same way as in the comics or, again, in the TV show. So in a, in a Garfield comic, like I said, he usually comments about something mundane in a very sarcastic way. Like I, I brought up uh, 
the TV, for example. So one, um, like a particular comic strip that I looked up uh, from May 14th, 2001. Uh, he's flipping between TV channels with his remote, and you know the first channel he, sh he sees shows nonsense, and then the second one he sees shows drivel. But then in the third panel, Garfield goes, at last, when he finds nonsensical drivel. Like I said, that's a real strip from May 14th, 2001. So it's really hard to take something that's that little teeny tiny bite-sized story that has a bunch of other little teeny tiny bite-sized non-connecting stories and turn it into a feature-length film. So it's, it, it's really not surprising that the adaptation didn't work super well. I mean, it still worked fine. It's not like it's a terrible, horrible one-star movie, but it's definitely not, you know, a eight, nine out of ten movie either. And that's not even going into, like, a bunch of the little things that are just, like, flat-out wrong in the movie. So in the comics and in the TV show, for example, there's the character Nermal, who's a gray kitten who's the world's cutest kitty cat in the comics, and he, he annoys Garfield. Garfield thinks he's, like, terrible because he's so cute, and that's objectively not what Garfield is. But then in the film... Nermal is a white, fully grown cat who's Garfield's friend. Which again, is distinctly not what Nermal is. Now, to be fair, I... God, I haven't seen the movie in full in a long time. Probably multiple, multiple years. Now, I have seen it in full at least once. But like with a bunch of other movies that I've seen, I've mostly just seen short clips here and there, like, like I said, that's just how I am with most movies. So I might not remember the film super well, but suffice it to say, Garfield the movie, whether it was, or like, you know, or rather just Garfield the property, whether it's in comic strip form, 30-minute TV special, or 20-minute TV show, um, it, it really wasn't about things like, what's one thing that happened? Oh, there's like a plot point about Garfield has to change the route that trains go on to make sure that the guy can't take Odie away. I'm sorry, I'm spoiling a big part of the film, but that, 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 that's, that's not what Garfield is about, you know? Um, I don't know, it's just, it's strange. It, it, it's not to say that Garfield could not ever in any way work as a full-length film, but it really has... There's a certain essence that it has to keep. And like I said, with the de like with Detective Pikachu as an adaptation, it it does its own thing, but it keeps enough beats from the original piece to make it still feel like it's um, from that, uh, like it's cut from that cloth. Actually, it's funny. I think uh, when looking at comic strip movies, a great comparison, one that does that adapts very well, in my opinion, is the Peanuts movie. And in that, they're like, instead of making one giant interconnected story, um, the film actually goes for three um, shorter vignettes. And I feel like that's something that the Garfield film could have uh, done in comparison, because then it still hits a bunch of um, the beats that, are, that you would expect from Garfield. Uh, and then it doesn't have to commit to trying to tell one gigantic story. So yeah, I'm just 
curious then, audience. What are what are some adaptations that you think are strong? What are some that you think are weak? And you know, all the ones that I talk about here just happen to be something becoming a movie, but it could be um, going in a different direction. It could be turning something into a book, something into a game, or just something else entirely. Um, all right, well, that covers up the last topic, so I guess it's just time to uh, wrap things up here then. So let's see. I just have a little bit more of notes here. Oh, no, yeah. Okay, this, this is just my conclusion notes. Um, so yeah, that should, uh, now that I've gone over these four topics, that should wrap up this episode of the Creative Outlet Podcast, The Cop, The COP. And you know, I, I actually have to say, I'm really enjoying making this show so far. Um, hopefully I'm going to be able to keep it going strong for a while. Um, preferably years if I can. That'd be great. Um course I know like you know, kind of like with the first episode there are obviously some technical bumps uh, some things that needed to be sorted out so not gonna it, it isn't gonna be super easy to keep this going but I'm sure going to try um, uh, but I, yeah I think that's about all I have to say here today please you know engage however you would like to on here um, be it through like hey you have a comment about something I said uh, if you want to do the old uh, can you like this then here you go. You like it. You dislike it. Nah, then you dislike it. Uh, uh, subscriptions, etc. Only if you feel so inclined to do so. If you don't, you know that's great. That um, just please keep watching. Um, but yeah, that's all I have here for today. I will see you next time, folks. All right. I will be signing out. This is Brandon Pudwell signing out for the Creative Outlet Podcast. <laughs>